You may have donated blood at some point in your life. You most likely head to the Red Cross if you're in Australia, go through a quick health screen, filling out some questions. You're hooked up to a needle, lie down for 10 to 15 minutes, and then you're done. And you get a cookie. You may have also donated your hair at some point in time, maybe around the time of the world's greatest shave. Shave it off, zip lock it up, and give it to a charity. That hair going on to make a wig of some description. These sorts of bodily donations have become pretty commonplace, but something you probably haven't thought about donating, and that's because you probably didn't know that you could in fact donate it, is your poo. Open Biome, a not-for-profit stool bank based in Massachusetts, says your poo is worth $40. Well, that's how much they're paying for their donors' samples, at least. Theoretically, a sample a day, seven days a week, there's a chance to pocket $280 a week from going to the toilet, bouncing that up to about $14,500 a year. But before you get too excited about this opportunity... The joke that they always say is that it's harder to become a donor than it is to get into Harvard because they have such (laughs) stringent criteria about, you know, how healthy they have to be and what kind of diet they have and they can't be on any kinds of medication and so on and so on and so on. The screening is rigorous, and so it should be, given the particular samples aren't just used for research purposes, but in many cases go on to become part of a faecal microbiota transplant. These transplants are particularly for people experiencing certain types of infections, one including C. diff, or Clostridium difficile infection, a really nasty bug in the gut. These transplants are all backed up by research and two real-life applications, where about 85-90% to of these transplants in the States have actually cured the person of C. diff. But the hype around this success has, according to Catherine Burke, microbiologist from the University of Technology, Sydney, given some the wrong idea. You know, maybe five years ago, I first started seeing all these articles about transfusions and fecal transplants. It's only transfusion. Transfusion. Oh, my God. Um, And not long after that, then, you know, you start seeing all the YouTube videos of people trying it for themselves. And, you know, some people are doing it because they're very sick and they feel like they don't have any other options. And so I can understand why they want to try it. but certainly I would say if you're not very sick, it's definitely not worth the risk. There, there was an article recently about cyclists doing this. They called it doping, where they were mm. doing fecal transplants from really good athletes to other athletes because they thought it would improve their performance. Oh, no. And that was definitely... I was just like, this has gone way too far. This is ridiculous. You know, there's no evidence that that would happen, that that's going to improve your athletic performance. That's crazy. This idea of DIY faecal transplants didn't just come out of thin air. These drastic measures are in fact part of a bigger movement, a bigger cultural shift when it comes to health. More and more people today are becoming obsessed with their microbiome, or your gut microbiota, more accurately, which is essentially the health of your gut. Today on the show we're going to take a look at when this movement began and why we're seeing more and more gut health-related products on our shelves than ever before. You're listening to Think Health. 
heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Jake Morecambe. The boom of the microbiome. Well, let's be technically correct and say gut microbiota from this point. Ultimately, comes down to one thing: bacteria. I absolutely think that bacteria rule the world.、Uh, they are everywhere. If bacteria weren't in the world, we couldn't exist, right? You know, not just in the human body, but also out in the environment, in the ocean, on plants. Kath says new innovations in technology and diversifying research are teaching us more and more about the bacteria in the body, and particularly bacteria in the gut. But she also believes, amongst all this hubbub, a lot of people still have the wrong idea when it comes to bacteria. The idea that there's good bacteria, and then there's bad bacteria. And I think that's something that is not. Necessarily, an easy concept to get across. Like that binary idea of good and bad is very easy for people to understand. For Kath, bacteria don't always sit on either side of the fence. Here, for her, it's really about context. There are some bacteria who almost never cause a problem, and then there are some bacteria who always cause a problem. So you know, if you're getting salmonella infection, that's usually usually bad. And also, some bacteria are completely harmless when you're healthy and everything in your gut is functioning normally. But if something changes, then they might stimulate an immune response that makes you feel sick or inflamed. When normally they don't cause you any harm. Now, the reason people always talk about gut and bacteria together is because your gut is home to the biggest concentration of bacteria in your body. There's about a hundred trillion different microbes colonising your gut, and they're all different species. This is Biata Bajorek, a pharmacist from the University of Technology, Sydney.、Uh, so it's estimated there's probably about fifty to sixty, perhaps more, different types of species of microbes in your gut. What species of bacteria are in your gut makes up your gut microbiota, and everyone's gut flora looks a little different. This is because everyone has their own individual interactions with bacteria in their everyday life. These interactions are hugely important because this exposure to bacteria are ultimately what strengthens our gut. They prep us for when we get sick because if exposed to a particularly bad bug, to a certain extent, our gut knows this bacteria and knows what to do to fight it off. But today, some are feeling their guts are missing out, missing out on particular bacteria's. So they're looking to other places to make up for what they feel their gut lacks, and this is usually in the form of probiotics. I definitely think there's a lot of hype around this area. And that's a concern for all health professionals. They do get concerned about what people can pick up off the shelf. If you're healthy, there's not necessarily a benefit. And then if you're sick, the results are, are usually quite all over the place. The evidence is not consistent. The demand for probiotics is higher than it's ever been before. In 2016, the global probiotics market was worth around 36 billion US dollars, and is predicted by 2024. To nearly double that amount, probiotics are live bacteria offered in a capsule form, 
and they're not just sold at pharmacies. You can also see them at your health store or even on the shelves at your local supermarket. Just as there are different species of bacteria, there are different types of probiotics. Many of them offering different sorts of health benefits or targets for parts of the body. But Biata says it's easy to get lost amongst all the clutter. The information out there is、um, quite generic. There are some very、um, general statements that are made about probiotics, but they don't go to that level of detail that somebody would be able to make a decision about which probiotic product would be appropriate for their current situation. What that, are some of these statements? Oh, look, you know, you know, probiotics are really,、um, you know, important to restore the normal healthy bacteria that you have、um, in, in the gut, and、um, if you do that, you know, you'll have improved digestion, improved, you know, cognitive function, so your brain will work better. It'll help you lose weight, and you know that may be true, and it could be true in very select groups of people that you know we have discovered that they are missing certain microbes, very specific strains. But as a generic statement, that's potentially a little bit misleading. The health and wellness industry have jumped onto the potential of probiotics, according to Biata, as a marketing opportunity. And that's been a long-standing issue. I mean, vitamin supplements are kind of, you know, the the precursors for what we're dealing with now.、Uh, look, it's a really tricky issue to resolve. I think going to a, a pharmacy, for example, where you have most access to things, the advantage there is that you do have a health professional that will intervene in that consultation and provide you some advice and、um, try and triage, you know, you in terms of where you should go and get help for your particular situation. The difficulty is more about the market away from a health centre. Even going online, you can buy lots of these things online without talking to anybody. It's just a credit card transaction. That is problematic, and the lines are blurred between whether or not they're legitimate medicines and go through the same scrutiny that other types of medicines would go through, or whether these are dietary supplements. That you know, do we need to have regulation around that or intervention? If We're not associating them with the same sort of criteria when it comes to other sorts of medications. Is there a particular criteria? Like, can anyone kind of make anything for any purpose? Look, in some ways, that's true.、Uh, in terms of manufacturing, anyone really can make anything. They all still have to comply with good manufacturing practices, and the products need to show that they contain what they propose to contain, that they've been produced under the right conditions. But it is about how they are marketed to consumers, to patients out there in the community, and、um, what people understand their purpose is, and being fully aware about the pros and the cons of using them. That probiotics can sidestep the assessment criteria of other medications also comes down to the fact that their potential for harm is pretty low. Most reactions that might occur in a typical adult would be no different than consuming the wrong types of foods, like if a gluten intolerant person ate a piece of toast. Another argument here is that rather than taking a probiotic to populate your gut with a particular bacteria, microbiologist Kath Burke says particular foods should already give you what you need, and these foods are called prebiotics, which are. Foods that you eat that will stimulate the growth of the good bacteria, in air quotes. So usually particular types of fiber that those bacteria really like to ferment, like kimchi and stuff. Yeah, I'm. You can actually get preparations of、um, inulin is one where it's actually products left over from food production. So I know that some people are making one out of sugarcane at the moment. So the the material that's left of the sugarcane after they extract the sugar, they actually just grind it up. 
In some cases, these methods work. Although some might argue things like fermented kimchi and kombucha do more for the soul rather than the gut, but in the case of probiotics, say you've been taking antibiotics for an extended period of time, and I'm not talking about just a week, but like a few months, your gut, due to the nature of the antibiotics, will be lower in levels of particular bacterium. If anyone that's had a gastrointestinal infection, so a gut virus, you'll know that because somebody's going to have lots of bouts of diarrhea, and you know with that you're flushing out lots of things from the bowels. That's probably going to be a pretty good indicator there that your normal flora, your gut microbes, have、um, changed in their balance. In this case, probiotics may be used to bring those levels back up, which for some can work, but for others, might not work. At all. Coming up, while some are jumping the gun when it comes to probiotics, so are the links between gut health affecting other parts of the body. I mean, initially, when I first started reading about the gut-brain axis and the links there, that that was definitely a like, well, how is that even possible <laughs> moment? But but these days, I've got to say, when I see something new that I haven't seen before, I'm just like, ah,、oh, yeah, of course, of course, that's connected to the microbiome. <laughs> it seems like everything is. The links between your gut and other parts of your body are many. Some Kath has already mentioned. This idea of the link between the gut and the brain, where a healthier gut may mean clearer cognitive function, but there are other things like gut and mental health, and that a healthy gut helps result in weight loss. Although there may be physiological links between one region and the other, we still don't exactly understand what these links mean. There are actually sort of physical linkages in terms of nerves and things between the gut and the brain. So there are sort of feasible ways by which messages could be transferred.、Um, but yeah, that was definitely、uh, for me a bit of a like, what the hell? How how is that possible? It seemed crazy when I first read about it. However, unpacking the relationship between the gut and the rest of the body has opened windows when it comes to your microbiota that have previously been overlooked. And one of these is the idea that what happens in the gut is different between the sexes. We weren't necessarily thinking about the microgenderome initially when we were exploring this. This is Amy Wallace, a PhD candidate from Victoria University, and Amy's PhD was expanding on the theory of something called the microgenderome. There are differences between males and females and how they respond to. Hormones and the microbiota can actually influence hormonal changes, and hormonal changes can influence microbiota. And there's another strain of emerging research that's looking into this very idea: the idea that bacteria in the gut regulate the levels of hormones also in your gut, known as gut hormones. And also on top of that, that those gut hormones have a part to play in regulating your immune system, of which keeps you healthy. So here, everything is interlinked, and ultimately, to keep balanced levels of hormones and a strong immune system, you need to have a healthy wide range of bacteria in your gut. 
Now, inserting Amy's particular research here, she was looking at chronic fatigue syndrome, or myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME for short. The causes for ME are unknown, but many characterize it as an autoimmune disease based on its symptoms. Cognitive difficulties, so difficulty finding words or issues um, around memory and attention, sleep difficulties, also heart and cardiac issues, respiratory issues, so it can really affect all different organs of the body. Amy took stool samples from more than 250 people living with ME, recorded their symptoms, and found that females were experiencing more impairment as a result of ME than males. What they were able to find is that with the presence of ME, the regulation of hormones differed between the sexes. So the way the gut, the hormones, and the immune system interplayed saw women experiencing more severe symptoms and overall more cases of ME. So we need to consider the role of hormones in in this interplay in ME because ME is a female predominant population. So there's about two to one female to male patients with ME. Understanding why there are more cases of ME among women and what exactly is causing this hormonal imbalance, those details are still being picked apart. But by identifying that there are symptom differences between men and women, Amy says this can help them find the appropriate treatment, which may include things like probiotics. That's been particularly important for chronic fatigue because the treatment outcomes aren't necessarily very positive at the moment and the the pathways are really um, not straightforward. But the importance here is not just another potential link between the gut and other parts of the body, but that this research highlights when it comes to diagnosis or even potential treatments, that there's a gendered history when it comes to health, and research typically has swayed towards the symptoms that might present in males. A lot of clinical trials do not look at sex differences. There's more research coming out now and where there's more understanding about how pharmaceuticals can impact males and females differently and a lot of it is based on male mice, but that doesn't necessarily provide a good insight into how females are going to respond to the same treatment. So it fits in with how you design treatment studies, basically. We really have to look at the sex differences Rather than throw out sweeping statements about gut health and probiotics, there's a real push from within the medical community to hone in on what's affecting the individual and bring in personalised approaches to medicine. When you're trying to add a supplement, you want to be replacing something that you know that you've lost. You don't want to be taking something that you already have plenty of. Individualised treatment is so important um, because what is healing to one can be very detrimental to another. You know, maybe probiotics of the future are not going to be the type of probiotics we see on the shelf today, but you're going to be able to go and do some kind of a test where they can see what's already in your gut and go, right, you need this particular combination for whatever it is that your you know, problem is. You would do a blood test um, if you're looking at vitamins and mineral supplementation. For probiotics, ideally, you'd be doing um, something that tests what's in the gut, and that's usually a stool culture test. 
I think it's also really important not to jump on any bandwagon without understanding more. But for ME in particular, often they go through multiple doctors and I've had a lot of patients explain that they, they see so many different people who just don't believe them. And to identify what's wrong physiologically for them is so useful. Certainly we all have our own individual microbiome, but it's also quite dynamic, right? It's, it's changing with everything that we do. That's it for Think Health. If you enjoyed the show and aren't already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to search for Think Health. You can also find out more info about us, about the show at our website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time. 